All right, we are back, and we have really no agenda what we're going to talk about, but we're hoping that our improvisational abilities are going to make this work. <laughs> but, uh, Steve, let's start out with the fact that um, you and I are from the same generation. We were born in the 50s. We were shaped by the 60s, which puts us much at odds with uh, today's millennials who were uh, shaped by, uh, you know, five years ago. We, uh, we grew up in a time when I think they took a lot, of, a lot of things a little less seriously than they do today, and I think... In many cases, that's probably just fine. Case in point, this has been a subject we brought up in this program before, and I just have to stop and say, don't these people have something better to do? Uh, Sacramento Bee article, September 2nd, about how Indian mascot names are still stirring outrage, comma, and pride. And, uh, you know, I just look at it like... The warriors. Warriors could be any kind of warriors. They don't mean they don't mean uh, necessarily Native American warriors. But there there are 16 schools in California where the mascots are the Indians. 13 are the Aztecs. 13 are Braves. Six are Redskins. Four Apaches. Two four are chieftains, and two are Blackhawks. With one each of Cherokees, Chiefs, and Comanches. When I was working down in New Mexico with the people in Indian Health, I noticed that the, uh, the the Navajos down there were walking around wearing Washington Redskins jackets. Seemed to be fine with it. They wore Cleveland Indians hats, those goofy hats with the goofy the goofy mascot. They thought that was fine. They, they, at least they were being cited as Indians. And I just wonder what how has this managed to get people up up in a lather? You have any insight? First of all, I think that the the masses of people that would complain about the use of those mascots. They have no idea, historically, of what happened to the Indians. They don't know who Quanah Parker was. They don't know who Red Cloud was. They don't really know the story of the Little Bighorn. They don't know who the Ogala Sioux were and why are they like the Lakota Sioux. They know nothing. They're always looking for something to jump on the bandwagon and be able to point at the landed class uh, in order to divide the haves the way they'd like to uh, position it and the have-nots. Now, I wouldn't presume to tell a Native American how they ought to feel about those mascots. If I were, you know, a descendant of Quanah Park or a Comanche or an Apache or whatever, I, I, who am I to say how they might feel about the, the reference to Indian lore, you know, and the great warriors and all that? Okay. What I'm saying is everybody's willing to jump in and tell everybody else how they feel. You know, and a lot of it has to do with, the, I'll, I'll just jump right into it, the Black Lives Matter movement. Let's talk about that. I do want to talk about that. I don't think that half of the people that jump in and talk about Black Lives Matter just as a musician, I don't think they understand even American history and how intertwined uh, African-American history is with this, with this country. It's all across our society. People, people are constantly telling other people how they ought to feel, what they ought to do, etc., as opposed to doing what most of the great religions of the world suggest and what Martin Luther King suggested and what, every, what all the good people of the world of goodwill would say, which is, you know, join together. Enjoy the diversity. Learn to speak a foreign language. Take up the blues. Go down to Pelahatcha, Mississippi and go 50 miles north to Indianola where B.B. King was born. I mean, get into it. Feel the earth. Feel the music. So your point just, is people should be moving forward and learning more about what's, you know, our history than just, just, just bitching about it. Right. B- bitching and, about you know, how they feel wrong. Yeah, and my example is, look at my, my ancestors are not English. We had nothing to do with the Magna Carta. <laughs> we had nothing to do with Manifest Destiny. My people ran from the Cossacks somewhere south of Lithuania and west of Ukraine and crossed on a boat to Ellis Island, you know, 50 years after slavery was over. All right? They had nothing to do with it. 
I mean, they could have said, well, you know, Ukrainian lives matter, you know, and, and just sort of felt like, gee, the world should understand them. Well, of course Ukrainian lives matter. And the great, you know, the masses of people, you know, the, the, the Irish with the potato famine and, you know, the black slavery, you know, where did it come from? Who was involved in it? You know, Freetown. All of that history is so important for people to understand. So going back to the Indian, you know, use of Indians as mascots, I don't know. I mean, if, if the largesse of the American Indian community in this nation said, you know, we know you guys aren't trying to be racist, but it doesn't really, we'd really like you to consider changing it. I think you could get a dialogue going, but those aren't the people that are making the complaints. People are ideologues. Well, and you got them on the right and you got them on the left. And you my, don't have the common sense, centrist people that truly do love other people, truly want things to move forward for all. Give a hand up for the people that need it and don't attack people just because they've been successful. I mean, that's what, that's what I think, that's my philosophy. And I look at the discussion over, you know, the Redskins and the Comanches and the Sioux and all that stuff the same way. Well, here's my problem with this Black Lives Matter. As people keep pointing out, all lives matter. And oh, yes, you can't say it. But if you say that. I know they're saying then you're diminishing the black lives. Well, no, you're not. Not in my opinion. We did the disclaimer, right? Yes. Good. Black lives matter. And, and what the, the focus on this is basically people who have been mistreated in custody by law enforcement. And I don't know what the exact numbers are, but certainly we've, you know, you could point to perhaps hundreds of people per year who have been perhaps, don't know, perhaps wrongly treated while in custody. But if you start doing the math on who is killing our black youth, it turns out that it's actually other black youth to the tune of something like one an hour throughout the course of the year. This is an astonishing statistic. And I just don't see that the, the community of black activists are, is, is addressing this as I think they should. Well, again, the people that are, are causing uh, uh, the divide are people that don't want to sit down and have a conversation. I absolutely know that there's abuse of prisoners, uh, often any kind of people that are in detention. You know, white, black, Mexican, you name it, okay? And... And I think that uh, statistically, I think police forces have over the last 10, 20 years done a much better job, you know, desensitizing some of these officers. There are still going to have bad apples. There are going to be some flaming bigots uh, riding in a patrol car, really giving it to some poor, you know, black kid that's done nothing. That's wrong. Okay. But, well, yeah, but, to, but, but they're also the cops that are going into this, into the center city. And they're responding to the home where a little black girl was shot about a month ago in a drive-by. And all the people on the street and all the people in the home are black. And those, that, that, that hardens a person to see that kind of carnage day in and day out. Now, do I think that they're racist? I don't know. you got to look into their heart. But do people that are at odds with one another, if there's a synergy that's occurred where both sides are fired up. And there needs to be a decompression of that. And that's where I'm disappointed. People on the Black Lives Matter side and people on the other side, they seem to be flaming the, you know, fanning yeah, the flames I, I, exactly. rather than decompressing I, exactly. this. Exactly. Instead of decompressing this, they are basically pouring gasoline on the flames that are there. And, you know, I just think it would be much better served if people were stepping back and addressing the issue of black on black violence, which is pervasive in this country, and saying this is something we need to address along with the issues of people in custody, et cetera. Right. I have no doubt that if I were black and I walked into a Target to shop in a, in a mixed area, you know, mixed uh, demographics, uh, I bet you anything I'd, I'd be watched closer than uh, when I walk in there and I'm white. I have no doubt 
I think there are enough people that don't have that that aren't involved with people of other ethnicities and this and that, and they have feelings of distrust and all that type of thing. That has got to be a horrible burden for a person of color to carry. But that doesn't mean that every white person you run into is your enemy, because I'd be on the front lines with you. I want to focus on this because you and you and I in private conversations have talked about the fact that uh, that um, in the era in which your sons have been educated, meaning in the past decade or so, there, there seems to be an awful lot of finger pointing that maybe you're just not down with, and I don't think I would be either. There's no doubt that this whole uh, this whole notion of white privilege, um, you know, in today's world, I mean, I guess if you want to go back, you know, to the to the you know, movement of the masses of people and look at what happened to, you know, Europeans and how they came here and they're mostly white, you know, and then there was slavery and I, I get all that. Okay. And we should, we should understand all that and study that and understand it. But the notion that, that my, one of my sons could uh, apply to USC, which is about, you know, 25% white students unsubsidized and go to USC and in all three classes of one quarter, the number, and this is to get a teaching credential, the, this, the top issue was to study white privilege. Really? And how there is white privilege and how that's a real challenge and problem for teachers going into diverse communities and teaching. <laughs> and my son is sitting there going, I don't get it. My dad used to have those barbecues for my buddies and I <laughs> in the football team. He'd serve, I swear to God, I, had, I served ribs. And then for my buddy, Sadiq, every year for five years straight, chicken he was just like a son to me we had guys from every different rainbow part of the i mean it's ridiculous my kids they my kids go we're post-racial we don't get this we don't see color and we don't see that ethnicity that that your generation sees apparently and that's a beautiful thing right so you can you can imagine how disappointed it is when they go into class and same thing happened when my son studied abroad in england he was like the only only white american guy at the University of Westminster, yeah. right there downtown. Yeah. And the entire class, he was just constantly asked questions and picked on about American politics and about white privilege and about you Americans and this and that. And so what you're doing is you're taking really? you're taking a whole group of a whole generation of kids that are potentially the ones from all different races that'll drag us forward you know, into a, a you know, really what we want, the ideal of the melting pot or whatever. And you're dividing them all. It's like it makes no sense. Well, I, I think that's a lot of what we're seeing currently with this idea of, 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 of you know, divisions, divisions. You're this, you're privileged, you're, you're, you're that. Right. And, and, and I just, I mean, certainly an awareness of some of this is good, but I think you and I would have to agree that, that they're just whipping this thing to death. There are clearly problems, as they always have been, and there always will be in ver- all various you know, sectors of society that need to be addressed. But they will never be solved without basic civility, the ability to have a high-minded conversation, to be able to go to a school board meeting and raise an issue without people throwing signs at you when you walk back to your car, regardless of what side you're on. This country has turned into a brawling country, and it starts with the leaders. Just watch Congress. Some of the things they say to each other are vile, and that's where everybody else is learning it. It's disgusting. Yeah, let's let's. I don't mean to want to do this too much, but you know, we're facing a presidential race right now where the things being said about immigrants, et cetera, 
I mean, they have moved things to just a whole new level. You could not say, well, no politician that wanted to get elected would say the things that are now becoming the mainstream, at least in the GOP side of things. Uh, it seems to be acknowledged by all that unless uh, you can pick up more Hispanic voters, you're going to lose, like Mitt Romney did so poorly with Hispanics. And yeah, we've got Donald Trump out there talking about uh, deporting 11.5 million people. Yeah. It's like that that's really yeah. going to bring people over to your side. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I think, you know, people are using these issues and using these people, you know, to, to curry the vote. And, and it, it ignores, I mean, both sides have created this, this issue now that they can jump on for votes. I mean, the, and I'll just, you know, my opinion, the breadth of the executive power wielded by the president on, on the, you know, with respect to immigration and the ability to stay in the country and going to suspend all the laws or whatever. I mean, he would say and has said, oh, I did that because Congress didn't do anything. Well, because just because Congress doesn't do anything doesn't mean that you can become a czar. On the other hand, Congress has done nothing. On the other hand, all these people are talking about uh, uh, deporting people. You know, those people are working at their houses. And I mean, you know, it's just, it's absolutely crazy. We've never had a guest worker, guest worker program. It's like, it's like anything else, said doctor. The few bad apples spoil it for everybody else. People, Mexicans have been coming to our state since it was Mexico. <laughs> okay? And so the point is, is that clearly uh, we, we share a border, we share humanity, we share culture and everything with the Mexicans. The problem is we got a drug problem, which, is, which is, has to do with our country and Mexico. We've got a crime problem, which has to do, you know, we have, certainly have crime in this country, and with a few, you know, the cartels and the M16s or whatever they're called. So the great masses of people are just trying to come here. I have a hard time, like, really being critical of them wanting to form a better life. On the other hand, we have to have an organized immigration system. I don't agree that we should be like Europe, well, where you don't need a passport to go from France to Germany. I have to admit, I, I find myself... Um although people are squawking about this, I find myself somewhat in agreement with the argument that we need some reform on people coming here and having and giving birth to someone who becomes an American citizen. The Chinese are sending pregnant women over here, coaching them how to come over here, have your kid while you're here, and take your American citizen back to China so you have an out, out of that country. It's like no other country on earth, as far as I know, does this. It's in our constitution, I admit, it's been a longstanding right, but when you look at it and say, is this reasonable, I have to say, I, I just, I have my you know, doubts. You were, know, there were times in history where, uh, and I think that the founders, you know, being as educated as they were, if you ever read the Federalist Papers, I mean, these guys knew history. They go back to, you know, before Christ with philosophers and the Gnostics and the Genoans and all the stuff. And I just think that there was a, a real, you know, an altruistic benevolence amongst these men, even though some of them had slaves, which was that if somebody can make it here, it's like base. It's like safe. That, you know, doggone it, people, there are people fleeing. They have nowhere to go. And if they make it here and then they have a baby here, you know what? They're safe here. I think there's something to be said for that. It'd be interesting to go back and research the Constitution, you know, what the, what the uh, ramp up was to passing that. That's really not the issue. The issue is how can we have an orderly uh, acceptance of people who are coming into the country. We're not going to deport anybody at this point. Those people do need to register. They, we do need to know who they are. The guys that are hiring them need to pay Social Security taxes on them. Uh, by and large, the people I've met that half probably whom are legal and half maybe not documented properly, you know, are great people. Some of the hardest working people I've ever seen, you know, and, and talented. I mean, skillful people. And, you know, I don't want to go into a lot of detail on that. But it's just the politics. It's out of control. And both parties use it. They try to use it to their advantage. That's why 
even even though the guy shocks me, some of the things he says, that's why Trump is at least getting some some traction because he's saying things that at least people on the right wish somebody would say. Well, apparently some people on the left too. They're saying, well, at least he's talking about it. It's- you got to build consensus. The country's got to build a consensus, even even among its different the differences between all the folks. Okay, and if you can build a consensus, we get, we do have the greatest country in the world. Problem is, our politics suck. Follow the money, uh, for the most part. What it's resulting in is, I think, more, you know, kind of racist talk, and it's you know from all quarters, left, right, and in between. All right, let's do lightning round here where economics meets the world of law and see, just kind of get your opinion and just, just shooting from the hip here. We got, we got gold mines all over this country. Apparently in Colorado, the EPA was screwing around with this gold mine and, and released thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of contaminated water into the rivers. But the truth of the matter is, all over this country we have abandoned mines. There's like 33,000 of them, and they estimate to clean them up it's going to cost us $35 billion. Now, I can pretty well predict no one's going to want to spend that money. No, they aren't. But there's a backstory to the FDA thing. And uh, I have good sources that would suggest that, you know, the EPA doesn't go deep into a mine and, and like, pull the little keystone out on an underground uh, dam and flood an entire river, uh, you know, several hundred miles downstream without having a reason to do so. Okay. And there's been a fight in that community for years about the cons- proposed construction of a huge, some sort of machinery. I think it has to do with, you know, water conditioning, you know, because there is so much arsenic and all these things in that area. Oh, yeah. That's and the tough. local people didn't want it built. And so why not just pull the plug, totally toxify the area, and then they'll have it built? We need to do a little more research on that. Wow. You, that's, there's, a, there's a theory behind that that's what really yeah. happened. But as right? far as the mines go, I just say ban them. What's the problem? There is a problem with gold mines. That's exactly my point. They're incredibly toxic. Not if you ban them. Uh, I mean, 16-ounce drinks are banned in New York. By the way, did you hear they're going to have to put the amount of sodium? They aren't going to put the milligrams because people don't know what milligrams are. They're going to have like a little salt shaker to show (laughs) how much sodium is in your... Is in your uh, McDuck or McDuck? Well, everybody McDuck makes fun of all this, but apparently the, the number of calories that are now available on menus is getting a lot of people to, to wake up and go, wow, maybe yeah. I shouldn't eat that 2,000 calorie snack I agree. for lunch. I agree with the calorie thing. All right, a final item. Why don't you play off something I've been ranting about here on the show for the longest time? Water in California. I think you and I both know there's been some chicanery going on out there. There's an article in the, um, the Chronicle, actually, by Dennis Baldoki. Uh, in June that I've been saving because he just raises this interesting issue. Why don't we use water according to its price? Set up an actual pricing system that makes sense. He mentions in the article that if we supplied agriculture with market-priced water rather than the cheap, highly subsidized water, that may provide a means of making better decisions. He threw out some perspective in the article, noting that last year farmers in the Central California Irrigation District near Los Banos in Merced County paid $17 per acre foot of water used. That price is a fraction of the cost of storing water and pumping it across the state. He points out rather um, succinctly here that if farmers paid more for water, then we would not see as many flooded pastures or the current mix of crops and orchards. In other no, words, but a head of iceberg lettuce would cost $7. I don't think so. But well, if it did, maybe we should grow something else. I mean, if it's like they're talking about, everyone's waking up to the fact that, you know, the almond industry is stung by the fact that people have pointed out that, you know, it takes a gallon of water to grow one nut. 
So you can go, you can, you can, uh, if you want to like go to the restaurant and not drink that 16 ounce glass of water and you do that 17 more times, then you save enough water for one almond. It's some pretty, pretty scary math. I think water's always been gold. I mean, you know, it's what's new. We're in a drought, a really nasty drought. The aquifers are reported to be drying up. Some people are saying, oh, they'll never be aquifers again. They're going to well, close pump- up like, they, you know, like... They met 60% of their water this needs this year by just pumping it out of the ground. Right. You on know, the other know. hand, on the other hand, uh, California conserved, used 31% less water over the last three or four months just based on small changes. I mean, that's awesome. No, you know? it's not awesome. And, it's a joke. Your lawns going brown are not going to help. Where's you, the water? If you leave the water in the reservoir and don't use it on your lawn to put it back on the aquifer, they're going to ship it south and put more, more almond trees in the ground. Anyway, Steve, thanks for joining us on our penultimate uh, regularly regular broadcast here on KDVS. I do think that uh, uh, as, I'm, as I'm, you know, contemplating uh, our ending this, uh, I'm looking down at an old editorial from 2009 by Stuart Leavenworth and the Bee, asking people to join the ranks of citizen journalists. And there was also an article in the San Francisco Chronicle about, uh, you know, 60 years of airwave advocacy down in the Bay Area with KPFA and some other people. And I think that it is possible for uh, someone to just step up and try and be a citizen journalist. We've been trying to do that here. I think we've succeeded at times, maybe not as well as we would have liked to. But, you know, it's important to try. Anyway, Steve, we've had quite quite a range of topics that we've thrown back and forth here. But uh, but anyway, I, I, you'll be back on again when we have either an internet-only show or perhaps even some shows on, on, on our broadcast as we talk about some of these important issues of the day. And I just want to thank you for giving the whole idea for Radio Parallax 15 years ago. And I'm glad that I was a part of it with you, my best friend and lifelong bud, <laughs> Dr. Everett. Thank, thank you, sir, yeah. and good night. And thank you, Walter Winchell. <laughs>